0: So Psalm 138, I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods, I sing your praise. I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. On the day I called, you answered me. My strength of soul you increased. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. Pray with me. Father, we thank you this morning for the opportunity that we have to learn of you from your precious word. We ask that you would communicate your truth through my mouth and that you would change our hearts with your Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. While Psalm 138 provides a glimpse into the life of David, a chapter in his story, it's really about God. Each of us has a story, a testimony of grace that in every chapter points us back to our creator. And the stories that shape us really aren't so much about us as they are about him. God is always writing his own narrative in each of our lives. And so what better way to begin than with a story and a story about baseball. (laughs) Let me introduce to you Aaron Barrett. He's not here. Aaron is a Christian and he's also a pitcher for the world champion Washington Nationals. And I'm sure that most in this room have never heard of Aaron Barrett. In fact, outside of the DC metro area, he'd be little known. But in 2014, when he was a rookie, Uh, he suffered a significant injury to his throwing arm. He tore his ulnar collateral ligament. And if you know anything about baseball or about anatomy, you need that ligament in order to throw a baseball. So at at that point in time, his career is potentially over. But he underwent surgery in 2015 to correct that injury, and then he began a rehab process. And then in 2016, as he was coming back into baseball and he was in a practice game, He was throwing a pitch about 90 miles an hour, and then he broke his arm. He broke the humerus, the large bone in the arm, and he required emergent surgery. They put a plate into his arm with 16 screws. And so remarkably, he recovered from that injury, and he began his rehab process over again. And then this September, at the age of 31, he did make his return to baseball and pitched in his first major league game since 2014. And his was a remarkable, a remarkable five-year journey of overcoming extraordinary odds following two potentially career-ending injuries. What makes his story extraordinary really is not so much his physical and, and mental trials that he went through, but what's not- noteworthy is his response to the trials. And in a recent interview near the end of this past season, A reporter remarked that Aaron's story seemed to transcend beyond baseball, beyond the entire arena of sports. And when asked, he asked Aaron what you could share with others who are going through difficulty or adversity. And he humbly admitted that even though his faith in the Lord is primary, he hadn't always trusted God's plan for his life. After his injury, he began to question the Lord, Why me? Why did this happen to me? I think very much like you or I would question the Lord and question his plan or wisdom for our lives, especially when we're experiencing something that might be life altering. He concluded his interview by saying that he had learned to trust God and to change his mindset from one of questioning God's plan to trusting God's plan and accepting it. Well, in the end, as you know, He did complete his journey back to the big leagues. But more notably, he came to a place of deeper trust and faith in the Lord. While Aaron Barrett will likely never return to be an elite pitcher in the major leagues, more importantly, he's come to a point in his life where he's able to see beyond the success or failure of his immediate circumstances to a greater purpose and a greater goal, and that's bringing glory to his Savior while God is preparing him for eternity. I can relate to Aaron's story of unfulfilled dreams and disappointment. My response in those situations too often is to limit my perspective to the immediate circumstances. It becomes all about me and not about God. In fact, I think throughout most of my Christian life, the focus of my energies have tended to be on the here and now, and how my difficult circumstances interrupt my agenda for my life while I miss God's greater purposes for his glory and for my life. And in one sense, this is similar to David's description in Psalm 138 and how the Lord delivered him from his trial. But I think unlike David and unlike the Old Testament authors and the New Testament writers, I believe that we place too much emphasis on the here and now God's provision for today and we sadly miss a bigger more relevant uh, eternal picture I think that while we should believe and trust God's promises for our lives today our main focus should always be upward and outward toward God and toward eternity the preacher in Ecclesiastes reminds us in chapter 3 he has made everything beautiful in its time Also, he has put eternity into man's hearts. Peter, in his first letter, wisely reminds his readers, whom he describes as elect exiles and sojourners, that their true home is in the future. And he's reminding us today that this is not our home. We've been born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading that's kept in heaven for us. So join me as we uncover the riches of Psalm 138, and hopefully we, like David, will be able to see beyond ourselves and our current circumstances and look upward toward a grander view of reality, a reality that's actually more real. It has its focal point, God, and his magnificent purposes for our lives and for his glory. Many of us know that the book of Psalms is a compilation of poems with different expressions, but with one purpose. How do we talk to God? In in the book of Psalms, there are laments, whose primary goal is to present a troubling situation to the Lord and ask for his help. There are hymns of praise which help us call out on the Lord and praise him for his great works. And there are wisdom psalms, there are messianic psalms, and like Psalm 138, there are psalms of thanksgiving that thank God for his answer to a specific situation or set of circumstances. It's fairly certain that David wrote this psalm not long after the end of his 10 year persecution under Saul. And this is significant because like in so many psalms, here we're made aware of the presence of and very real threat from mortal enemies. It's not essential that we know the exact circumstances of David's trouble. What's most important for us to understand is his response to danger and uncertain future in light of his knowledge of and experience of a faithful and sovereign Lord. So the main idea for this message is because of a known and certain future, we can confidently face an unknown present. Because of a known and certain future, we can confidently face an unknown present. We can divide the text into three parts that track the order of the psalm. In the first part, I've called David's Thanksgiving, looking back with gratitude. David's Thanksgiving, looking back with gratitude. And those follow, that follows the first three verses. I'll read this again for us. I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods, I sing your praise. I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. On the day I called, you answered me. My strength of soul, you increased. In verse 1, David is expressing gratitude that the text indicates is with his whole heart. It's a sincere, heartfelt gratitude. With my whole heart indicates fervent affection and zeal. Why is David so expressive? Well, most likely he's relieved after 10 years running and hiding from Saul. But notice two things about David's gratitude in verse 1. It's expressed with his whole heart, and he sings the Lord's praise before the gods. David's expression of gratitude before pagan idols is actually quite bold. One commentator explains it this way The psalmist praises the greatness and glory of Yahweh in the face, so to speak. Of false gods. David believed that Yahweh's power was greater than the nations and their false deities. For example, if we refer back to the time that David was being pursued by Saul, first excuse me, first Samuel chapter 26, and you don't need to turn there, but in verse 19, <clears throat> the prophet Samuel recounts that David was faced with very real temptation to turn to idols for help, because he had been chased out of Israel by Saul. And if David wasn't seeking Yahweh's help, removed from the land, he could have easily turned to false idols. But of course we know David didn't do that. He didn't turn to idols or bow down to them. And in, and in refusing to do that, David proclaimed that even though my king and my kinsmen forsake me, I will not turn to other gods. And for David at that time and in those circumstances, his worship and praise of Yahweh and not other gods would have been considered to be daring and very bold. Well, not only is his boldness evidenced in his defiance of idols, but David's actions also display a bold trust in his sovereign God. You see elsewhere in 1 Samuel chapter 26, at the, ta- at the time that David was refusing to bow down to pagan idols, he also made a crucial decision that reflected the genuineness of his trust in and reliance on his God and not his own resources. Samuel recounts for us that David had an opportunity actually to kill Saul and end the years long struggle for his life. But Dave cho- David chose to spare Saul's life. Why? Let's look together at 1 Samuel 26, verses 23 through 25 on the screen. This is a description of David addressing Saul after he spared the king's life. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. And then Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went his way, and Saul returned to his place. You see, David at that time chose to honor God's anointed rather than taking matters into his own hands. And this is similar to the Apostle Peter's encouragement to the church in 1 Peter when he, when he calls us to respect and honor emperors and rulers. But what motivated David to make this decision, knowing that in the end, it might actually cause his death? Well, I think David saw beyond this life to a greater reality. He viewed obedience to God in light of eternity of far greater value than succumbing to the temptations to the world, even to the point of risking his own life. David understood that his actions would have eternal consequences, both for himself and for others. Well, in verse 2, David continues to express his adoration of the Lord. I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness, for you have exalted above all things your name and your word. Now, the use of temple in this verse might be confusing because at the time that this was written, Solomon's temple had not yet been built. However, temple is, is really meant to refer to tabernacle, or dwelling place of God. David is bowing down to the very presence of God. And this is David's humility. We can now see two sides to David. First we have David's boldness in acknowledging the greatness of God before before idols, and David's humility in bowing down toward the Lord. David is sincere, he's fervent, he's bold, and he's humble. But in this verse, David now reveals actually the main reason he's giving thanks to the Lord. It's God's steadfast love and his faithfulness. The Hebrew word for steadfast love is hesed, which means loyal love or unfailing love. It refers to the Lord's covenant love. David is not explicitly thanking the Lord because he delivered him from a trial but he's thanking God for his steadfast love and his faithfulness. In the second part of verse two, we gain further insight into David's broader perspective of God and God's purposes. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. One commentator explains the meaning this way. You have magnified your name and your word above all else. God's primary goal is to magnify his name, his glory. David acknowledges and proclaims God's glory to be preeminent. And this is the theme that's found throughout scripture. One example is in Exodus, when the Lord gave the Ten Commandments, he made it very clear that he alone is to be worshiped and he will share his glory with no other Quoting from Exodus chapter 20, verses two through five, the Lord says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. The Lord is jealous for his glory. See yes, John Collins, in his commentary, explains it this way. He says, the deepest motive in the heart of God is his own glory to the exclusion of all other glories. At this point in the psalm, David's connecting God's commitment to his own glory to the Lord's commitment to David's ultimate well-being, his security, and his future. David has absolute confidence in God's faithfulness and his care because he knows that God will use all means to bring about glory for himself through David's life. And really, today, there's no difference for us. God will sustain you with his love, in order to ultimately be glorified through your life. This reality should give us great hope, especially when we face uncertainty and trials. Well, if you look at verse 3, David continues, and he further acknowledges God's faithfulness and grace. On the day I called, you answered me. My strength of soul, you increased Well, how many times, like me, have you asked the Lord, have you prayed, or have you even pleaded with God to deliver you from your circumstances or trial? I know that all too well. We want the hardship to end. However, God has a bigger goal, a goal beyond just the temporary relief from our hardship, something that's of eternal consequence. David understood this, I think, and that's why in verse 3, he didn't just rejoice because God had delivered him from the trial. Instead, he proclaims, my strength of soul you increased. The statement, my strength of soul you increased, should be understood to mean, you made me equal to the occasion, or you made me bold in my soul with strength. David's rejoicing wasn't because God had delivered him but because God had given the ability to endure. It isn't the circumstances that God necessarily changes. It's the person experiencing the hardship that God transforms. 19th century theologian William Plummer expressed it this way. It matters little how sharp our trials if our fortitude and courage are proportioned to them. <clears throat> strength in the soul is the best strength in the world. God made David equal to the occasion, and he will make each of us equal to the occasion right. as well, whatever that might be. Yes, That's how grace works. Good. When Paul was afflicted with a thorn in the flesh, he pleaded with God to remove the thorn. What was the Lord's response? My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Yes. Sometimes God is more glorified in giving us the grace to endure rather than d- delivering us out of the circumstance. So true. Glory be to God. Well, what greater purpose does God have for his people? I think David provides a glimpse in the second section of the psalm, which I have called David's messianic vision, a servant king, David's messianic vision, a servant king, and these are verses four through six. He says, all the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth and they shall sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Now, I know that most of us, we're used to when we read a book or we read a story, we, we think the main point is realized at the end of the story. However, this psalm has as its climax the main point in the middle verses, not the last. Up to this point, the psalm has focused primarily on David's circumstances and his response to the fear, the uncertainty, and the danger that he faced. A response that is, as we've seen, informed by God's faithfulness, by God's steadfast love, expressed in God's words, and his commitment to his name, his glory. But in verses 4 and 5, the focus turns to a future event. It points forward to a time when all the kings of the earth will sing the Lord's praise and proclaim the greatness of his glory. And this, brothers and sisters, this is the main point of this psalm. While understood to be a psalm of thanksgiving and that it is, it can also be described as a messianic psalm, a psalm that speaks of a future glorified king. In fact, Martin Luther he wrote that this psalm was actually David's prayer for the coming Messiah, and it was a prophecy that kings and nations will one day hear the gospel. Psalm 102 expresses it this way in verse 15. Nations will fear the name of the Lord, and all the kings of the earth will fear your glory. If we look carefully at verse 4, when he uses the phrase, for they have heard the words of your mouth, David is actually expressing with absolute certainty what is to come. In other words, David is confident of a future event. Let me ask you, have you ever found yourself to be in a situation where you were confident of the outcome or saw something happening when you knew what was going to happen in the end and you were so sure you were willing to stake your life even as David did on the outcome? Well, let me illustrate with another story. For those that are familiar with Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings trilogy, there's a part in the last movie where the hero, one of the heroes, Aragorn, he charges into battle, but he's outnumbered against a more heavily and en- heavily armored enemy. And for those that saw the movie, I'm sure some of us in this room, do you remember the look of confidence on Aragorn's face as he jumped off that ship? Well what the enemy didn't realize at that moment, and what maybe those of you who didn't see the movie need to understand, is that earlier in the story, Aragorn had secured the allegiance of an entire army. and this army, er, centuries earlier, had been placed under a curse, and now they existed as invisible spirits. No one could see them. Well, Aragorn approached this army and he promised to release their curse on the condition that they would assist him in battle. Well, in the movie, the scene is actually riveting. The future of the entire world is at stake. Well, actually, just Middle Earth. But the scene is the final battle and the enemy forces have taken the upper hand and just when all seems to be lost, Aragorn and his two companions leap off this ship into battle. Well, as you watch the scene unfold, you're thinking, what is he doing? There's no way he's going to survive. Why is he doing this? And if you're like me when you're watching movies, at that point in time, at least the first time I saw the movie, I thought, okay, all is lost. Well, as I mentioned, in the movie, there's this look of confidence and determination on Aragorn's face it tells you that there's something not quite as it appears here. Well, at the last second, this army of dead spirits appears. And with their aid, Aragorn and his allies, as you can imagine, they overwhelm the forces of evil, and the battle is won. Well, David, I think David expresses a similar confidence, but in a far different outcome. He knows that the Lord will be honored and glorified. He says that and not just by his people, but by the entire earth. David knows his future is secure. He's not fearful of his future. He's not fretting the outcome of his trials. He's not consumed by the uncertainty of life. He knows the outcome, even if he can't see it. In fact, the realization of verses four and five, they weren't fulfilled during David's life. And therefore, they must point to a future fulfillment. David believed in the certainty of God's faithfulness and his steadfast love. His decisions, many of them life and death decisions, reflected his faith. Well, brothers and sisters, on this side of the cross, we have far greater reason to believe this certainty. We know the climax of God's revelation And the proof of his faithfulness is realized in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Christ and him crucified. The proof of this is in the cross where Christ took our sin and our punishment and now we have right standing with God. Paul in Philippians chapter two, he also points forward to this glorious future with its fulfillment in Christ. Philippians chapter two verses nine through 11. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. David has boldly predicted that one day his God will be worshipped and glorified by the kings of the earth. David proclaims that pagan idols are worthless. He praises the majesty of his Lord's name and his word. But actually, in this psalm, David's not done. He unveils yet another aspect to God's character, one that clearly sets Yahweh apart from earthly rulers and pagan idols. If you look at me with verse six, for though the Lord is high, He regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Well, this is not what I would have expected at this point after a description of a a glorified king. One expects mighty and powerful kings to disregard the lowly. They exploit the disadvantaged. But this is not, not the case with David's God. We see here that David is not finished proclaiming the greatness of the glory of God, The Lord lowers himself to regard and care for the downcast. This is equally a part of God's glory as is his power and might. Mm -hmm. And as we sang, the Lord is both merciful and mighty. Well, David's vision years before of this great and mighty king who stoops down to care for the poor and disadvantaged, this was fulfilled over a thousand years later when God sent his son Jesus. We see this clearly in the incarnation where Christ, the majestic ruler of the universe, was born in humble circumstances in a manger. Later he was crucified on a cross, and only then to ascend to glory, and he now reigns as king for all eternity. David understood this paradox, and he, like other Old Testament saints, placed his hope in the certainty of the reign of this future king. The writer of the book of Hebrews describes this in chapters 11 and 12. And speaking of David, Abraham, Moses, the prophets, and others, he writes this. Hebrews chapter 11. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Therefore, Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Unlike the saints of old, we're in a position where we can look to Jesus. We have the assurance of the cross, the blood of Christ, and that's how we can run with endurance this life that is before us. Well, as David concludes this psalm, he returns to his personal circumstances, his present reality. Remember, he's in mortal danger. He's being pursued by his enemies. And in verses seven and eight, he again expresses faith in an all-powerful all powerful and sovereign God, who will deliver him from his enemies. And this is point number three David's humility, assurance for the future. David's humility, assurance for the future, verses seven and eight. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. In these verses, David's confidence and trust and trust in God's power are expressed by the use of what are called anthropomorphic phrases. And if you look at verse seven, when he says, you stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies and your right hand delivers me. Well, this is a literary um, tool that's used in the book of Psalms. It's something that ascribes human form or human action to God. It's a literary tool used to emphasize God's greatness. We can see elsewhere in the Psalms, you don't need to turn there, in Psalm 8, when I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. And in Psalm 33, behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. And in Exodus chapter 15, your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy well now David he concludes the psalm in verse 8 he says the Lord will fulfill his purpose for me your steadfast love O Lord endures forever do not forsake the work of your hands when I began my study of Psalm 138 this is the verse actually where I started Of course, I thought to myself, this is the most important verse, the most important message of the psalm. God will fulfill his purpose for my life. During my preparation, the Lord showed me actually how self-focused I can be to, to think that the relevance of the psalm was actually about the reader, about me. I believe that many of us are tempted to read Scripture, especially the psalms that way, and don't get me wrong, I believe the Lord has provided the Psalms to comfort us. <clears throat> Excuse me, to comfort us and to lift our souls. But there are actually other crucial questions to ask about the meaning of purpose in Scripture, especially the Psalms. When I began my preparation, my focus went directly to the passage's immediate application to my life. I think when the more important question to be asked was, what does this Psalm say about God? In his book, Preaching Christ from Psalms, author Sidney Gordanis says, a key question that must be raised in interpreting a psalm is, what does the psalm say about God and God's relationship with his creation and his people? Yes, David's proclamation, the Lord will fulfill his purpose for me, is a comforting and reassuring promise. Job famously came to this realization in chapter 42 when he says, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And in Isaiah, the Lord emphatically states, I declare the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purposes. In other words, the Lord is saying, I will see to it that my purposes for your life are accomplished. But David's teaching us that God's primary purpose for us ultimately is to bring glory to his name. Well, David continues verse eight with a prayer and the concluding phrase of this prayer, he says, do not forsake the work of your hands. You need to understand that this isn't really what it may sound like, a plea or a request of the Lord to do something that he previously promised to do, as if to say, Lord, don't forget to fulfill your promise to me. That's what it might sound like, but it's actually a confession of total reliance on God, David placing all hope in God. It's a realization that should the Lord Lord forsake his works, all else would be lost. Realizing God's sovereign control over our circumstances should be one of the greatest sources of comfort to our souls, but it often isn't, and I wonder, why is that? If your understanding, if our understanding is restricted to our current circumstances, we limit our view, and we actually miss a bigger picture. And I think David understood this. In Psalm 138, David rightly acknowledges God's sovereign care for his life. But David didn't stop there. He spoke of a future day that he would not see, a day when the greatness and glory of his God would be proclaimed and all the kings of the earth would give thanks and sing always praise. That's why he could trust God. David was assured of God's ultimate glorification and his personal salvation. Do you have this assurance, the hope of a future salvation? If so, you can face the future, as painful or as uncertain as it may seem, and you can face it with confidence. But if you have not trusted Christ as your Savior, you have the opportunity today. The Bible instructs us that if we place our trust in Christ and submit our life to his rule, we will have hope for an uncertain future and the assurance that our sins will be forgiven and God will secure our salvation and a place in heaven with him. If you're in Christ, really, ultimately, there is no uncertainty I think, yes, there are questions throughout our lives that perplex us, they overwhelm us, and we get confused. Living in a fallen world under the curse of sin produces disappointment and heartache. We suffer physical harm, physical hardship and disease. We experience relational strife and sorrow, and perhaps that's you today. You may feel overwhelmed and like David, surrounded by circumstances that seem insurmountable and questions about your future. Well let me encourage you brothers and sisters as David has shown us in Psalm 138 humbly give thanks to the Lord with your whole heart bow down to your savior you have a faithful god who loves you with his steadfast love he has he has secured your future you know ultimately how the story will end there's a day coming when all the kings of the earth will worship when every knee will bow Of this we can be certain, and you can be certain that He will carry you through the joys and disappointments of life into eternity with Him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that in Christ, through His death and resurrection, you have not only secured our eternal salvation, but we have the assurance, the confidence, that you will bring us through the pain, the disappointment, and the trials of this life into eternity with you and for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.